We're going to kind of look at our passage today in two parts. We're going to do some exposition of the first seven verses. Uh, actually, we're going to add a couple more there uh, as well. But 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, we're going to do some exposition of that. Got some real cool things to point out along the way. Um, and then we're going to sort of at the end, we're going to piggyback off of an Old Testament story of battle uh, as Gideon prepared uh, to take the Israelites to fight the Midianites. Uh, it's a cool story of battle that we're going to use as sort of a motivation to, to make practical what we're talking about in Second Timothy today. So uh, we're going to have some fun, cool stuff to look at. I want to just catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us. We're in uh, a series called Fan the Flame. It's all about Second Timothy. And, and we're focusing mostly on the process of making disciples from one generation to the next, from one person to another, fanning the flame of the gospel, the good deposit, as Timothy is told by Paul that it's called. So we're going we're gonna to do this today by, by looking back at the first two things and then adding the third thing. The first week we talked about remember your faith, Remember where you came from, Timothy, sort of, that was Paul's message to him. Remember your faith that was given to you through other people. It's by God through people given to you. Remember that. Don't forget it. Four times in that passage, just the span of a few verses, he says, remind, remember. So the first week was remember your faith. Last week, the second week, we talked about sharing in suffering. Uh, to, to be a believer who enters into the battle of disciple-making is to share in the suffering of Christ and uh, to do that boldly. So we're going to actually talk about that a little more because it's in the passage. Today, for the third week, we're going to look at this phrase, guard the good deposit. And I, I titled today, uh, About That Good Deposit Thing. I want to tell you more about that. That's what Paul is basically saying here. He's going to explain the good deposit thing. And I know that it's not even in our passage, and it's in our title. So I want to tell you where that came from. I want to show you that. So look back at chapter 1, verse 12. I want us to see where this good deposit thing comes from. Guard the good deposit. Look at verse 12, about a quarter of the way through. It says this, But I am not ashamed, this is Paul speaking, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, that is Jesus, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, the day that he returns, what has been entrusted to me. The faith, the gospel entrusted to him. And then he says this, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, Paul talking to Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, now look at what goes on here between verses 12 and 13. I want to point this out to you because it's really cool. It says, I'm not ashamed, verse 12. Notice how much Paul is talking about his own faith here, his own faith and confidence in God. He says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's talking about his, himself, his own faith. But look at the transition, verse 13. There's a transition from Paul to Timothy that you do not want to miss here. He's in fact talking directly to Timothy. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, so in verse 12, you sort of ask the question, how is this good deposit entrusted and kept until the day when Jesus returns. He answers it in verse 13 by talking about Timothy. So the answer to the question of how is God going to guard the faith with which Paul has been entrusted is, is Timothy. Don't miss the transition from 12 to 13. How is God going to guard the good deposit the good news of the gospel that Paul was given by God through others 
So obviously it's from Jesus through the Spirit. I'm not trying to say that Timothy does it without Jesus. I am saying that the gospel moves through people who are animated by the Spirit of God. And so you see the transition there from Paul to Timothy. He's saying, you, Timothy, are to follow the pattern. Do what I've done for you. That's disciple making right there. That's what it looks like to make disciples. And that's what this whole book is all about. And as I've said a couple times, you're going to hear me use the word disciple, disciple making, fan the flame, pass the torch, all of those things till I'm blue in the face and till you're sick of hearing it in this series. Not because it's something that the special elite Jesus followers who are super spiritual get to, but because it is the whole calling. So the answer to the question of how is God going to guard the good deposit is with Timothy. (laughs) People are how God continues to fan the flame of the gospel in the world. So, So Timothy is how Jesus keeps the work moving. And how does he do that? Verse 14, it says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, First it was Paul talking about himself, then it was Timothy, and then he says, by the Holy Spirit that was in us, that that is living in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Pass on the good deposit. Think of it this way. The good news that we proclaim, the good news, which we're not going to define a lot today. You'll pick it up along the way, and we talk about it a lot here. Uh, But the good news of, of Jesus coming to make himself known to us, to make up for our sin, to assuage the wrath of God, the justified wrath of God against our sin, that good news that we proclaim and that we preach, as we are doing that, proclaiming and preaching, not just with our words, but also with our deeds, with our whole life, as we do that, we are making deposits in other people, in their lives. We're making investments in the other's who see our life and testimony and our witness, who hear the good news of the gospel. And so Paul is saying you have to guard that good deposit that I have made in you so that you can extend that to somebody else. Now, as soon as I use the word guard, I know that you think the same thing probably that I do. I hear guard the good deposit, and I think of like a soldier standing at, at post with a sword or, or with, a, with a gun, ready to defend the post against an attacker, as if that's what guarding by itself means. Uh, But what Paul is saying here is something that's not just defense, but it's a little more offense. To guard the good deposit is to actively stay faithful to the process of God's work in you. To guard the good deposit is to stay faithful to God's work in you, so that it keeps on into another. And, and Paul is using this passage, this whole book really to say, I deposited this gospel in you and it took root and it grew. And look at you now, Timothy. I'm about, I'm about to be killed perhaps in prison in Rome from where I'm writing this. This is the end of my time. And, and it's time for you to take fruit and continue that, that message. And it's not just something that that Paul does, that that people do. It's something that Jesus did. And all of those who come before 
the, the people, the people who are the reasons why you sit in these pews are the process of the people who have guarded the good deposit. So Paul's just saying, listen, like I did it for you, like your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice did for you, keep fanning the flame of the gospel. So guard the good deposit. So starting in chapter 2, he begins to sort of explain what that looks like a little bit. Explain some of the principles involved in guarding the good deposit. The first one is this, verse 1, chapter 2. Guard the good deposit by the strength of grace. It says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I know for the detail people uh, like me who are among us, we skipped verses 15 through 18 at the end of chapter 1. In basic terms, uh, the end of chapter 1 is a couple of examples that Paul uses to say, this person did not guard the good deposit, and this person did. He's talking about Phagellus and Hermogenes, who are uh, examples of of not guarding the good deposit. Let's take that out of the uh, audio. Phagellus and Hermogenes, who did not guard the good deposit, and Onesiphorus, who did. And so then he says this in verse 1, But you then, my child, like Onesiphorus, not like Phagellus and Hermogenes, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Unlike those who turned away, and like those who were always faithful, you must do ministry in the strength that comes from grace. Later on in verse 9, he says that ministry happens not because of our works, but because of God's own purpose and grace. Which is to say this, friends. The resource of strength for your ministry of fanning the flame. The resource is grace. The resource for strength in your ministry of fanning the flame is grace. Here's how this works. This grace, Paul is saying, that, that gives us the power to proclaim the gospel that continues to feed us so that we continue to do what has been done for us, that grace is the same grace that Christ offered on the cross. Be strengthened by that same grace. I don't know if you remember well the time maybe when you first proclaimed Christ. One of those times when the conviction of God meant that you were broken and and you had a sense of, of, of just, I have to have God making up for my sin in the person of Jesus. I have to have grace because I, I don't have anything else that will help me. Remember that feeling about, about, and hopefully you have that and more, about the treasure of grace that you have in Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul is saying, if that grace that you knew then was enough to bring you to a knowledge of Christ, if that was enough to save you, then as you jump into, as you dive into, as you go into the battlefield of disciple-making, that same grace can keep you. It's that same power and grace that will keep you and will feed you and will equip you in your ministry of disciple-making. It's like being in war and needing a supply line. If you don't have a supply line when you're on the battlefield... You're toast. Grace, Paul says, is your supply line. In fact, that, that phrase there says, be strengthened. It's in, it's in a tense we call the, the present passive. 
And it has a sort of continuing sense to it. Paul is saying, Paul is saying, keep on being strong by the same grace that you knew that was given to you by Jesus. Here's why this is important. (laughs) You have to have that keeping us going grace. It's important because I know that as soon as a preacher stands up here and says, this is what you have to do. And it's a high calling. Let's just face it. Making disciples is a very high calling. I know that for most of us, as soon as I stand up here and, and, and say something like that, <laughs> many of you probably have the same kind of thought that I do. A whole bunch of us hear those kind of high standards, high callings, and you think, that's nice, <laughs> but seriously, I can hardly get my kids up on time to get them dressed, to get them to school, without like emotionally slitting my own wrists. And you're going to tell me that I need to add on my to-do list Making sure the work of God is deposited in somebody else? I'm just trying to get my kids dressed. That's why you need grace. Because the the ministry is not natural. The ministry is not natural. Natural ministry in my power and your power creates disciples that look like us. It creates disciples who are made in our own image. And that's not disciple making. That's not the heart of God. That's churchianity that makes people look and act like us. That has the same preferences we do. People who, who just look and smell and act and talk just like we do. Mostly, frankly, mostly so that I feel good. Not so that the heart of God can be duplicated in another person. So if you're doing this ministry, it's going to have to be supernatural ministry because life transformation is the goal. And that's going to mean that grace has to continue to flow in your life. And if there was an endless supply of God's grace to save you, then there will be an endless supply of God's grace to keep you, regardless of the circumstance, no matter the trial, no matter the opposition. There is enough grace to accomplish the task because that's the message we're using. The person of Christ coming in grace is the gospel we proclaim. And so we have to guard that. We have to continue to, to, to take care of that faith that was given to us. Second thing he points out here, verse 2, is to entrust the good deposit to faithful men. This good deposit of faith of the gospel, this good deposit has to be entrusted, given into the care of faithful men who will steward it well. Verse 2 is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others Also, this is a picture of passing the torch, of fanning the flame. Read it again and look at how many people are involved in this process of fanning the flame. It says, what you have heard from me, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the process of of giving this to you, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's the cloud of witnesses who came before Paul. So we're talking about Timothy, Paul, Cloud of witnesses. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you, Timothy, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Five different groups of people, five perhaps generations of people who are involved in this process of fanning the flame. You sit here because of countless names of people you never know, some of whom you do, who fan the flame of the gospel. 
It wasn't five generations. There are more generations than you could possibly imagine who are a part of you knowing Christ. So, so Paul's saying to Timothy, what you've heard from me, in the presence of all those who came before me, who guarded the good deposit, you have to do that and trust it to men who are faithful. This is one of the key places in Scripture, just kind of as a little aside, one of the key places in Scripture where we get our stated mission as a church, making disciple makers. It's here from verse 2. Entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This isn't just about making disciples. This is about making disciples who are equipped to make disciples. This is the goal of all of our church programs and ministries, worship services, preaching on Sunday, studying the Word, gathering in small groups, serving, fellowshipping. All of that will not guard the good deposit by itself unless it reaches out to continue to make disciples who can make disciples. Those things I mentioned are good. They're good things. They equip. They train. But they are by themselves worthless if they do not result in disciples being made who make disciples. I want to show you a picture that we use here at church. Some of you have seen this before. Some of you have not. It's just a visual of the process for us of making disciple makers. What we're doing here is celebrate God and his work in our lives in worship. We have two areas in which we are cultivating growth with God and one another in a in a vertical way, in a horizontal way, study groups where we learn about the Word and continue to study, and then life groups where we apply the sermon material in the context of a community, life application there. And then from there we communicate the gospel as a part of our impact team, which is all the ministries of the church, those that are internally focused, those that are externally focused. And I want you to see the bottom part here. You may not be able to read this, but those arrows at the bottom And the phrase underneath it says, disciple makers equip others' involvement in the process. To make disciples is to take so seriously what Jesus did for you that gave you salvation, that you take that treasure, you guard that good deposit, and you make sure that others know the joy of a relationship with Jesus. And as you invest in others, in in even those kinds of ways, and support the structure of people being involved and connected to the body of Christ, you participate in disciple-making. And there there are tons of creative ways that you can do this. There are tons of practical ways to do this. All you have to do is introduce yourself to somebody on Sunday you don't know. Boom, connection. All you have to do if somebody new has come is take a small step. For some of you it may be uncomfortable. Good, do it. That's called entering the battlefield. We'll talk about that later. All it takes is stepping out for the cause of someone else connecting to the body, which is connecting to Christ. So that's why we visualize it that way. And and, and just straight up, our goal is for, for you to participate in being a dotted line. If you're not a dotted line, you're not as far as we want you to be. That's why we visualize it. We want you to know what the goal is. 
You can, you can debate the merits or not. But the goal is for you to be a disciple maker. Uh, one other quick thing before we move on to uh, verses 3 to 7. You can take that down, thanks. We're going to fly through verses 3 to 7 um, since I am incessantly in danger of keeping us here till dinner. I want you to notice in, in verse 2, not just the numbers of people involved in disciple making, but the quality, the kind of people involved. It says, entrust this to faithful men. Those who are qualified to continue to make that process happen. Listen, if you are not the real deal, if you are not the real deal believer, then you will reproduce people in your own image instead of the image of Jesus. And that's not Christianity, that is churchianity. That is disciple making in your own image. And that can be a road to hell page with good intentions, friends. That's not faithfulness to the purposes of God in the world. That's faithfulness to your purposes. Those who are faithful are the ones that will lead others to genuine discipleship. And this is an application of this sort of incidentally. Uh, This kind of thing is why we pick elders who are already actively reproducing. I I just want to say straight up, um, if you're not a disciple maker, you're not participating in those lines at the bottom supporting people becoming connected to the body. If you are not a disciple maker, you don't qualify to lead the people of God. Straight up. If you're demonstrating your faithfulness by shepherding people and making disciples, then you can be entrusted with that good deposit. But if you're not, plain and simple, it's too important to entrust to those who care about themselves and not the interests of the glory of God because that's His heart. Our goal is for all of you to be disciple makers. For that to be your laser-focused goal and vision. So verses 1 to 2, as we sort of covered already, are the main thought And 3 to 7 give uh, some color and some application to it. We're going to look at those real quick here. Look at verse 3. Read along here and listen to these pictures that Paul uses to describe what this looks like and how this works. Verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share Christ's burden. Don't sit on the sidelines watching somebody else fight the battle. Get off the bench and get in the game. Don't, please, Paul says, don't get into this passive place of apathy that assumes that it's somebody else's job and responsibility to do ministry and to make disciples. Friends, straight up, some of you just need to get off your rear end and assume some responsibility for the kingdom. There is no room for passivity in kingdom work. Christ paid too high a price for you to live under the false pretense that sitting in a pew for an hour and tipping when the sermon is good equates to active involvement in disciple-making because it doesn't. Those who model Christ's likeness to others at personal cost, they are the ones that share Christ's burden. Consider the cost. 
of Christ and His sacrifice that you would know Him. And friends, if, you're, if your Christian life isn't costing you much, then, then straight up, you're sitting on the bench watching others. And for the record, whether something costs you is not something you determine by comparing yourself to others, but by comparing yourself to the model of Christ. That's how you know if it costs you. So, verses 3 and 4 here, he says, basically, get off the bench, get into the game of disciple making. Share the burden of Christ. Verse 4, when you do that, keep your focus. Keep your focus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, he says, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is just such a cool verse. He's saying, stop frittering your resources with pathetic earthly goals. If you're living like that, you're listening to the wrong voices, the wrong generals. If you're a spiritual soldier, you don't hear all those other voices around you clamoring for attention. You are focused on the one master who gives you your marching orders. And when he says before he leaves the first time before he comes back, when he says, I'm leaving, you have to make disciples. That is the marching order for your life. Your aim is to please the one who enlisted you in the cause. When you do that, you have to, verse 5, compete with integrity. Compete with integrity. Uh, simply put, there are no shortcuts in the work of ministry. Uh, to make a disciple is a long, hard slog. Because disciple-making is life on life. Yes, yes, saved people, but saved people who still struggle with sin. When you are life on life with somebody in the process of disciple-making, it will be a long, hard slog. There will be parts that are ugly and hard and not fun and messy. So you have to continue to compete with integrity, with God's methods and His goals. And His method is to disciple people into the kingdom with integrity. Ain't nobody going to follow a discipler or listen to a boss or believe a mentor if that person doesn't compete with integrity. Which is why disciple-making requires a life of personal holiness. It doesn't work otherwise. There are no shortcuts. Verse 6, work like a farmer. <laughs> he says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's the hardworking farmer who shares in the joy. Uh, making disciples isn't hard, uh, is, is not easy work, it's hard work. In fact, uh, frankly, I think it's the hardest work you will ever do. It's the hardest work you will ever do. It's hard like farming is hard is what Paul is saying. You've got to get up early. You've got to milk the cows. You've got to feed the horses. You've got to sweep the barn. When you get up, are you preparing for kingdom work? I mean, like when, when a farmer gets up, the first thing on his mind is, I've got a bunch to do over here. Let, let, me, let me take care of this and of this and of this because he's focused. He knows what he has to do. A kingdom worker gets up and he says, Lord, today is an opportunity to participate in the wonder of redemption that you've made known to me in the life of another. Hardworking kingdom soldiers understand this. It's also hard 
Because doing that sometimes requires us uh, to farm with tools we may not be used to using. Which is to say, as you engage in disciple-making more and more, you will be using supernatural tools that maybe you're not used to using so much. It's called learning a trade. And that's part of disciple-making. And for some of us, disciple-making may be a new trade. That's okay. That's okay. Lastly, he says, verse 7, think about it. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's saying, consider carefully how you are meant to carry out this calling to fan the flame. I understand, I understand as we continue to talk about disciple making that there's this impulse in us uh, to want me to stand up here as the preacher and uh, to want me to tell you exactly the seven steps of how you are supposed to carry out that calling. There is almost this legalistic desire to have somebody else tell you what to do so that you can leave this place and be a robot and follow orders so you can measure yourself to make sure you're doing it right, sometimes so you can just feel good about yourself. But that's not how growth works. You must struggle through this. Not alone. In the context of other believers around you. That's what fellowship is for, encouragement. Not alone with others, but it must be a struggle. I I think what Paul is telling us here in verse 7, which is sort of a conclusion to this passage, he's saying if we will do what he's saying here, if we will guard the good deposit with grace, being trustworthy, like Christ, keeping focused, with integrity, working hard, then God will show you. If you keep those principles in mind as you enter into this ministry of making disciples, God will show you what to do. He will show you what making disciples looks like for you. In fact, all over the place in your life, you'll be inundated with opportunities for disciple making. But you have to get in the game for that. You don't sit on the bench and make disciples. It's not how it works. You have to enter into the battle. And when you do enter into the battle, God will direct you. It's sort of like this. There's a Old Testament story of Gideon taking the Israelites into battle. It's found in Judges chapter 7 if you want to look it up later. Gideon had assembled an army of 32,000 Israelite men to fight 135,000 Midianite men. The bad guys outnumbered the good guys 4 to 1 which means that the odds do not look good for the Israelites. Well, God didn't exactly like those odds, but not in the way we might think. He thought those numbers were stacked too much in the favor of the Israelites. He didn't want them to think that they won by their own power. He didn't want them to think that they got there and that they were doing what they did through natural power. So he thinned out the troops. He said, whoever's fearful and trembling of these 32,000. Whoever's fearful and trembling, let them leave. In fact, he says, let them hurry home. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. 22,000 of them leave. 32,000, 10,000. The odds are now one Israelite to, I don't have enough hands, 
13 Midianites. Not good odds. God looks at that and he goes, you know what, I, I, I like that, but that's not enough. <laughs> you can still go home thinking, I won this battle. And so he thins out the troops again. And of the 32,000, which become 10,000 that are not in fear and trembling. In other words, these are battle-ready soldiers. These are real soldiers. Suddenly, there are 300. 300 Israelite men in the army to take on 135,000 Midianites. The odds are now one Israelite for 450 Midianites. Now think for a moment about the strength of heart and of courage of these, these 300 men. These were 300 men who had come from the 10,000 who, who, who did not run. They were not scaredy cats. They, they were ready. They were prepared. They were willing to fight if there was one for every four, they were willing to fight. If there was one for every 13, they were willing to fight. If there was one for 450 of them. You know why? Because they knew where the victory came from. Humble men, battle-ready, knew where the victory came from. Think of what it takes, the kind of resolve and confidence that these 300 men had to have in, in God. These were not recent wet behind the ears recruits. These were tested soldiers. Semper Fi, always faithful. Because they knew that God brings the victory. <laughs> Multiple times in that passage, God says, I'll save you. I will give the Midianites into your hands. Their confidence came from knowing that when they went to battle by the orders of of a general who promises eternal reward, there is no losing. When you go into battle at the orders of a general who promises eternal reward, no matter the circumstances, there is no losing. Let me tell you an interesting thing about war. I don't know this. <laughs> But I've heard many who have fought for our own country say this about war, about battle. They say this, you can prepare, you can train, you can run through all the simulations till you know how to assemble your gun in your sleep. But until you are in the heat of battle, you do not know what it's like. Which is to say, you do not become a soldier when you're trained enough. You do not become a soldier when you have enough information. You do not become a soldier by simply hearing pleasant stories of easy victories and exotic lands. Here's how this is like the Christian life. You become a battle-ready soldier. You become a true soldier who is willing to sacrifice for the forward march of the kingdom by actually being in battle. And what I fear is that many of us have been trained, 
and run through simulations and know the strategy. But very few, it seems, have been on the field of battle to make disciples. Which is like being stuck in boot camp your whole Christian life. Christ paid too high a price for you to count personal comfort as such a high value that you would rather sit in boot camp. Disciple making is the front lines of the march of the kingdom of God on earth. So get off the bench. Step out of boot camp. Become a soldier. When you do that, when you do that, the supply of God's grace becomes something you have to have. When you do that, you will, you will be in the Word because you know you have to be. Not because somebody told you to. When you're on the field of battle to make disciples, you will rely on prayer as spiritual fuel for your life. Not as something you've, you've, you've heard others do. When you're on the field of battle to make disciples and you're actually in the game, and you're not just sitting in boot camp all day, you will have to rely on the fellowship of other believers to encourage you. You'll have to have it. When you're, when you're, when you're on the field of battle, and if you're sitting on the bench, if you're sitting in boot camp, you, you're thinking, I don't even know where I'm gifted. I don't know what I need. I don't know how to do anything. When you're on the field of battle, it becomes very clear. You will know where you lack, and you will know where you're gifted. And friends, that's, that's the only place to be for the believer is on the battlefield, engaged in a way which means you have to have the word, you have to be in prayer, you have to know other believers around you, you have to rely on the grace of God because, because the ministry is too big for you to do in your own power. So for some of us, I think, and in ways for me included, we have to just stop, stop waiting for inspiration. Take a step that involves some perspiration. It's not, it's not rocket science. Life on life discipleship is taking somebody out for coffee, meeting somebody for lunch, having them over to your home, being intentional with your relationships. So they're about the purpose of equipping and building up so that you and others can engage with the, the amazing joy of participating in exactly the kind of ministry that led Jesus to die on the cross for you so that someone else can know Him. Until you've experienced that in your Christian life, you're just sitting in boot camp. 
find out what it looks like to be a Paul to a Timothy.